continue our series, our study in the book of Philippians. And I've entitled the message this morning, Will You Receive the Prize? Will you receive the prize? Lord, I just thank you for what's already transpired. I thank you for each and every person here. I don't believe they're here by accident. I believe that you brought them. And so I ask for your blessing to rest upon them. I would ask that they would receive everything that you intended for them to receive by inviting them here. And I know the greatest gift is you. And I pray that no one will walk out of here not knowing that there truly is a living God who loves them and who can change their lives and give them a life they never thought possible. As always, I ask that you would fill me from the soles of my feet to the crown of uh, my head. I do ask, Holy Spirit, that the words that I speak would truly be your words, that your word would come alive, and that it would produce the fruit that you determined in eternity past that it would produce. And now I just thank you for what you're going to do in these next several minutes, and I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. For as that Paul uses in the Bible to describe the Christian life is a race, a runner running a race. Now, the race that Paul's referring to here is not the 100-yard sprint or the 100-yard dash. All too often, I have seen people start the Christian race off with a bang and zoom, there they go. And you see them off in the distance, but not too long after that, they run out of steam, right? And they just kind of stop and they kind of quit. And so they start out great. Have you seen that? I've seen people start out great, but they are unable to finish the race. I had a professor by the name of Dr. Howard Hendricks, and he was so fond of saying, men, the Christian race, the Christian life is not a 100-yard sprint. It is a marathon, a much different race. And the Apostle Paul this morning in the verses that we're going to look at, he's going to talk about what it takes to run the Christian marathon successfully. He's going to tell us that four things are absolutely essential if we are going to run the Christian marathon and win the prize. Can you put those verses up? Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Paul writes, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I have already achieved or reached perfection, but I press on to possess the perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past, And looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must hold on to the progress we have already made. So Paul here tells us four things are essential to running the Christian marathon, and I would like to unpack those four things. First, Paul tells us, in order to run the Christian marathon successfully, we must have the right goal. He says again in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things, or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess the perfection which Christ Jesus first possessed me. You know, So often I will hear Christians talk about, well, you know, I'm not perfect, as if that's a badge of honor or something. Do you understand that the goal of the Christian life is perfection? Period. (laughs) It's right there in the word of God. 
The goal of the Christian life is perfection. That's what you must aim for. That is what I must aim for. And the picture of perfection is none other than Jesus. In fact, I will hammer away and hammer away at Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. Skip, can you put that up? For God knew his people in advance. Did you know it's not by accident? If you're in the kingdom, you're not in by accident. God knew you in eternity past. In fact, it means he loved you. He desired to have you. And he chose them. Now watch this though. Why? Because he wants us to become like his son. That's Jesus, so that his son would be the firstborn. People get confused by that. Prototakos is a Greek word. It means the preeminent one among many brothers and sisters. So the goal clearly is for us to look like Jesus. You know, when I was a boy, I don't know, maybe uh, you did too, I had heroes. And I would put posters on my wall. This was back in the day. I don't know if they'd even do that anymore, but this is back, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s. And on my wall, I would have the famed purple people eaters there. See, I'm from the promised land, Minnesota. Those are the true purple people. And I mean, I used to just worship those guys. And then, of course, I worshiped Harmon Killebrew. He was the great home run hitter. You can put that up, Skip, for the Minnesota Twins. And I would just stare at the wall, and I would look at these guys. No, I would. I wore their numbers. I worshipped them. I did everything that I could to emulate them. Now that I've grown up, though, I put those guys away. And I have a new hero. And I worship him. Skip, can you put up the picture? You might find this interesting. Uh, Maybe some of you are what's known as shroudies. This is the Shroud of Turin. Now, I've studied this thing for years and years and years and years and years. And I can almost assure you with absolute certainty, this is the most incredible, as you might call it, religious relic known to man. What you see there is an image of a man who's been beaten badly, crucified. And the nail prints are interesting. They have them here, not here, which you would have seen in the Middle Ages. And by the way, if you, if you nail a person to the cross here, he's just going to come off you got to nail them here. And uh, what makes this thing interesting, some believe that this is a forgery, and I'll explain why in a moment, but this is a 3D image. I mean, there's nothing like it. And what creates the image, by the way, the image is slowly fading away. What it is is a scorch. And the scorch is just on the very top fibrils of that shroud. And it's in a Absolutely, I mean, there's no brush strokes, there's no paint, there, there's no way humanly anyone could have created this. What created, though, the great controversy was it was dated about, back, I think, in the 80s, and they dated it around their carbon dating at somewhere around the 1500s, so that would make it a problem. What people don't understand, though, is that this was at least in three fires, or two fires, if not three, and they would have to patch it at various points. And what they carbon dated, and it's clear they carbon dated a patch. And I think if they recarbon date the actual cloth, you'll find out it will date back to the first century. But you say, well, how did that scorch mark get on there? I'll tell you how that scorch mark got on there. And we're coming up to Easter. It's my favorite time of the year. I don't know about you. But I really believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And I believe that it took tremendous amount of energy. I mean, an incredible amount of energy. And I believe the energy and the heat of Jesus entering back into that body again in the new resurrected body actually created what you see 
there. You can study it for yourself, but if you're looking for proof, I believe this is one of the great proofs that God has given man. There's no other explanation for it. Now, here's the interesting part. Uh, An artist has, you know, taken that face, and here's what perhaps was the face of Jesus Christ. Skip, can you put that up? Isn't that interesting? You can read about that in Isaiah chapter and 53. And so, you know, I want you to know now that everything in my household, if you go into my household, you will see pictures. And not necessarily of Jesus, but you will see pictures reflecting all kinds of biblical stories. You will see scriptures. And the reason why I do that is because I want to focus on my new goal, on, on, on my hero, on Jesus. Like I said last week, and Paul said it, he said, the only thing like, if you really, really understand the shroud, if you understand the resurrection, I mean, you can't just sit there and, and just be neutral about it. If you really believe that in your heart of hearts, and you yourself have experienced the resurrection of Jesus in your life, you just can't be neutral or passe about it. And Paul, remember, he says, he, he, he experienced that on the Damascus road, and he said, I just want to know Jesus. I just want to know Jesus. I want to know him more and more and more and to become like him. There's no greater goal. I want you to know, in fact, do you know that there is no greater achievement in life? There is no greater goal. There is no greater glory that you can give God than to know Jesus, to seek to know him, pursue him, and to look like him. Did you know that? See, that's our problem here. We don't believe that up here. But I'll tell you, if you're going to really win the Christian race, the Christian marathon, you have to come to the point in your life where you realize that's the only goal that matters is to know him, is to really know him, and to look like him. Now, that's not just going to happen, by the way. I like to say, you know, you're you're just not going to be able to look like Jesus on your own. You're not going to be able to achieve perfection, and neither am I. I like to say that the Christian life is not difficult. It's, It's a... It's a supernatural life. You can't do it, and I can't do it. Jesus makes an interesting statement in John in chapter 12. This is his final week on planet Earth. Skip, can you put up those verses? He says this. Now Jesus replied, now the time he's speaking to his disciples. Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world, now watch this, will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for all of eternity. Anyone who wants to be my disciple must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that the path to true life in here, the path to life in here is death. There is no other way. You cannot be filled with you and your dreams and your goals and your desires. See, when you really have that that cathartic meeting with the Holy Spirit and Jesus, and you experience that resurrection in your heart, your focus really does, your goal really does become Jesus. You say, look, Jesus, I'm giving you my life. I'm giving you my dreams. I'm giving you my goals. I'm giving you my desires. That's what it means. That's what Jesus said. Those who love their life, meaning they want their own way, they're going to ultimately lose it. And you know, the interesting thing is, is that when you honestly get filled, you you give up your life, you know what? You get filled with true life. 
And here's what's going to happen to you in Galatians 5.22. And I repeat it all the time, but I want you to see what it says in Galatians 5.22. Skip, can you put it up? He does not have Galatians 5.22. I'll give it to you. It says this. Now the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Notice if you read the Greek, but notice, there it is. The Holy Spirit produces. He produces it in you, but he can only produce it in you when you're dead. See, the great problem, the reason why so many people here in America are not experiencing real life, and they just say Jesus, it just tears me up. It's because, see, they're still filled with their own life. They want Jesus to baptize what they want. It doesn't work. It, Jesus isn't going to baptize what you want, your goals, dreams. It's contrary to all of the garbage that you hear. In fact, do you know what? I challenge you. Go on the websites to any of the churches that you'll see and find out if you see a message preached on this. It's interesting. If you go back to the 1800s, the 1700s, the 1600s, you know what the main message was to Christians? You must die so that you can live. That, that was the main message. You don't even hear it anymore. And we're robbing you. The reason why you're not experiencing the life and the reason why it seems blasé and you need someone to jack you up, whether it's music or you go to a concert or you got to go to a conference, is because you're not experiencing what Jesus said in John 4, that wellspring of the Holy Spirit. And it's tragic. It is possible to do that. But you must make the goal of your life, Jesus Christ, and knowing him in every situation that you find yourself in. And this leads now, by the way, to the second thing that's absolutely essential if you're going to run the Christian marathon. Skip, can you put it up? He says this in Philippians 3, uh, 3.13, No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Focus. You see, so the goal is Jesus, to know him. To just keep knowing him in every... So you wake up in the morning and say, Jesus, I just want to know you. I want to die and I want to know you. I want to experience your life. You need focus to do that. You've got to be like a laser beam. Skip, can you put up the picture? You know, that's an old-time picture, but you see a lion tamer. I don't know if you ever went to Barnum Bailey's three-ring circus. But, you know, you always saw the lion tamer come in, and he'd have a whip, and then he'd have a chair. And the chair would have four legs. Now, you get the whip part. That's supposed to put the fear of God, you know, in the lion. But why? Why the stool? You know, why a stool like this? I mean, what's the deal here? Why does the lion tamer go like this? Boom! You know what happens when he does this? The lion tries to focus on all four legs at one time and his attention becomes divided and he becomes confused that's true he actually becomes confused and he becomes paralyzed and he just freezes and he doesn't attack the lion tamer that's why he does that and do you know what what satan's chief goals is with respect to us it's to get our eyes off jesus the goal so that you know we become distracted when it's satan's chief tools is to actually just get us completely and totally distracted on on what we should be focused on and so often you know we just fall for that and whatnot and uh, the author of the book of hebrews writes this he writes these penetrating words he says this therefore 
since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Now, you know, I don't know if you can see it in your mind's eye, but I can see every time I read the scripture, I get this picture. Skip, can you put it up? You see this picture here, and you see, you know, all the saints who have ever lived, and there they are on the rim. I don't know if it's like that, the rim of heaven. And they're looking down on earth. Can you imagine that? And they're watching you, and they're watching me. And they're not only just watching, but they're cheering us on. And one of the things they're cheering us on, obviously, is not to get involved in sin. Obviously, if I get involved in sin, I've taken my focus off Jesus. But, you know, the the writer of the book of Hebrews talks about weights. There's weights we carry. You know what those weights are? They're distractions. And they're not necessarily bad things. In fact, Satan is a master at not getting us to focus on sinning, just outright rebellion. But what he does try to do is get us to focus on distractions. For example, let me me give you one of the distractions. One of them might be a relationship. I have seen people get so focused on getting, you know, um, a, a, a marriage partner or they just get involved in a relationship and suddenly their focus is on that relationship and they take their eyes off Jesus. They want to please them. You know anybody like that? I have seen people get involved with their kids and, and they're on all kinds of sports. And before you know it, their focus is off Jesus. You don't see them on Sunday. You don't see them in small group. They don't really have time, you know, to, to really be reading the Bible. And their focus gets off Jesus. I have seen people who just get, you know, so interested in their job. And they're going to, you know, get promotion after promotion. They're going to make more and more money. They're, you know, they're worried about their retirement. And they get so involved in their job. Not a bad thing. But they take their focus off Jesus. I have seen people get really interested in their Motel 6. You know, when you travel, you stay at a hotel, right? Hotel 6, Holiday Inn. How many here, when you go to the Holiday Inn, you know, you see your room, you immediately go out to the furniture store and you decide, you know, you're going to start buying some furniture. You know, fix it up, right? Fix it up the way you want. You're going, is this guy nuts? Has this guy lost it? You say, no, I'm only going to be there a day. I'm only going to be there two days. Why would I do that? That's true. But why do you buy a house that you may only, and and, and people just focus on their little Motel 6, fixing it all up, you know, and then you got to keep it up, you know, and you got to buff it out and, and, and whatnot. And, you know, and you might die the next day. It blows my mind when people say, I just can't believe so and so died. And I'm going, really? I thought Jesus said the only thing that you can count on is today. Is today. Then why in the world do we think we have anything other than today? See, that takes our focus off of what really matters. See, if I only really have today, and I live that way. I live, I only have today. So therefore, my whole goal, I I assume I'm going to meet Jesus today. It changes your life. It really changes your life when you have the expectancy that I tonight am going to see Jesus Christ. I mean, it changes everything radically. And that's the problem, by and large, you know, that we're having. And so when you get distracted, that's all Satan wants to do, and you take your focus off Jesus, you're running in the flesh. And pretty soon, you're feeling anger. 
you're feeling empty, you're feeling bitterness, you're feeling lust, you're feeling envy, you're feeling greed. You have all these feelings. That's your flesh. If you lose your focus, Jesus, you're going to end up in the flesh. And you're miserable in here. And by the way, you're miserable to be around. No, that's why most people are miserable. They really are. Because they're running in the flesh. They're empty. They're angry. They're bitter. They're frustrated because they have a different goal. And they're not getting it. No, it's a real problem. You know, Skip, can you put up the picture? You know, if you go to horse races, you'll see this. They have blinders. You ever wondered why horses wear blinders? So they don't get distracted. So they keep forward and they look at the goal. Marvelous idea. I think we ought to try that with people. Skip, we're going to pass these out next week. See, wouldn't that be great? No, that would be awesome, don't you think? Really work wonders. All right, thirdly, if I'm going to run the Christian race successfully, if I'm going to run the Christian marathon successfully, I can't be mired in the past. And the Apostle Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 13. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past. You know, so often people just get mired in the past. And a lot of people think that what Paul's talking about is past sins and past failures. And I want you to know, it's absolutely true that we have a great adversary. His name is Satan. And, 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 and what Satan seeks to do as the great adversary is he's the accuser of the brethren. In fact, it says this in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. It says this. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. Do you realize that you have an accuser? Satan, the moment you do something wrong, he's accusing you. Have you ever heard that voice? Oh, I mean, I've heard that voice. All of a sudden, I'll hear Satan say, he'll accuse me, he'll scream, you lawbreaker, you have failed God. He doesn't want anything to do with you anymore. You ever heard something like that? Don't even bother with God. You ever heard anything like that? I've heard things like that. And you know what I say to Satan, the accuser of the brethren? I say, right you are. And you know why I do that? Because, I mean, it it just annihilates them. The moment you admit the truth, I say, Satan, you're right. I did what you said. But I want you to know, Satan, that I have confessed my sin. I have repented of my sin. And I am now covered under the blood of the Lamb. And Satan, I want you to know that it says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is no now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you know what Satan does? I mean, it's like kryptonite. I mean, he, he, he can't stand to be around truth. And he just flees. I mean, he's like a cockroach fleeing light. He is. He, he, he can't stand up to that. And that's a powerful truth. And that's one form of the past. But I don't think Paul's talking about that here because of the context. You know what I, I think Paul's talking about? I think Paul's talking about the good old days. I think he's talking about something positive. You ever been in the good old times, the good old days? And whatnot. In fact, it's a very dangerous place to be to go reminisce and be back in the good old days. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 9. Skip, put it up. Listen to what he says. But Jesus told him, anyone who puts a hand to the plow and then looks back 
is not fit for the kingdom of God. You know what Jesus is talking about here? He's talking about the long look backwards somewhere. You ever done that? Somewhere back in time, and you suddenly settle your mind, and you begin to reminisce about what it might be like if you could go back to that particular period of time. You ever done that? Very, very dangerous thing to do. Now I'm probably going to get in trouble here. You know, music is a powerful force. Music is a powerful force. It can do tremendous good, but it can also do tremendous evil. And I've had numerous kind of, uh, why don't we say, spirited discussions about music. And I remember one person saying to me, you know, Pastor, what is the big deal? What's wrong with the, you know, the music back in the 50s and the 60s? You know, like the Beach Boys, ba 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 baran, ba 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 baran, ba baran, ba baran. You know, what's the big deal? I mean, look at those, you know, I mean, look at those lyrics. Does, does, does that hurt anybody? No, no, I've, I, I've heard this, and I've, I, I see people wincing. And then I asked him this question. I just said this. I said, when you listen to that music, what do you think about? And the person said, well, I go back in time. And I think about a wonderful period in time and how I'd like to be back maybe in that time. Do you see? He wants to go back. And... It's very interesting. Do you remember what God told Lot as he's fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah? He said this in Genesis chapter 19. When they were safely out of the city, that's Lot and his family, one of the angels ordered, listen to this, run for your lives and don't look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. Skip, put up the next set of verses. Then the Lord rained down fire and burning sulfur from the sky on Sodom and Gomorrah. He utterly destroyed them along with the other cities and villages of the plain, wiping out all the people and every bit of vegetation. But Lot's wife looked back as she was following behind him, and she turned into a pillar of salt. The Hebrew is crystal clear there. What it says is Mrs. Lot longingly looked back to Sodom, longingly looked back to Gomorrah and what she was missing, and this is what happened to her. That speaks for itself. She turned to a pillar of salt. You cannot, cannot run the Christian race, the Christian marathon, by being mired in the past, either looking at your failures and your sins and your pain and whatnot and just being mired in that, not going to work, not going to happen. Nor can you run the Christian race by being back here reminiscing about the good old times. Maybe you're 55, maybe you're like me, you're 58, you're over the hill, your kids tell you that, you think your life is over. And you want to go back to the good old days. You cannot run the Christian marathon that way. You cannot run the Christian race. It is forward. It is forward. It is forward. It is forward looking forward. And you and I must look forward. Now there's one final thing that is essential if you're really going to run this race well. If you're going to win the Christian marathon. And you have to run for the prize says this in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 14. I, 
I, Paul says, press on to reach. You know, I mean, the Greek here, I mean, he's talking about with every fiber of his being, I press to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. You see, the goal is Jesus. The goal is to look like Jesus. The goal is to know Jesus, and it's the means of attaining the prize. Have you ever wondered what the prize is? Do you know what the heavenly prize is? You know, there was a man by the name of John Chrysostom. Skip put up his picture. Chrysostom lived back in the 4th century, and he was uh, known as the golden mouth preacher. And Chrysostom, obviously, is closer to it than we are. And he said, I know what that prize is. I know exactly what the Apostle Paul was talking about. He said he's talking about the Agonophates. I think we have a picture. You know, we didn't have camera back then. But the Agonophates there, you'll see a picture. You say, well, what are the Agonophates? The Agonophates were uh, a retired, they were super athletes who had been retired, and they would preside over the Roman games. And so they would generally sit with Caesar in Caesar's box. And so when a runner would w- w- win the race, the Agonophates would go down to the field, and the Agonophates then would place the victor's wreath, which is a perishable wreath, by the way. The victor's wreath was just made up of leaves and twigs, and they would place it on the victor's head, and that would be that. But every once in a while in the games, someone would do something spectacular. An athlete would just do something fantastic. The crowd would rise to its feet, and they would just be simply amazed at what this athlete had done. And when the race was over, the Ghanaphates, instead of going down to the field to crown the victor, they instead would call up the winning athlete up to Caesar's box. And there would be that winning athlete with Caesar, and the Agonophates would be circled around Caesar and the winning athlete. And there, Caesar in front of perhaps, the, if you go to the Colosseum, 100,000 people, it's amazing to see the Roman Colosseum. And there, he would call out the victor's name, and then he would call out his father's name. He would call out his hometown. And then Caesar himself would place the victor's wreath, that perishable wreath on the winning athlete. And then he would say, well done. You have made Rome proud today. Let us worship you. And Paul could envision in his mind. He could see it in his mind, Revelation chapter 4. Skip, put it up. I don't know if you can. He could see the myriad and myriads of Christians and saints all through the centuries. There around the throne. There around the Lamb. And Paul could see him at one point in time himself being called up by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And saying, Paul, come on up here. And Paul coming up, and Jesus himself placing on Paul, not a perishable crown, but the imperishable crown. Can you see that in your mind's eye? And saying, Paul, you ran the race well. Well done, my good and faithful servant. In all of Paul's sufferings, all of Paul's prison sentences, all of Paul's whippings and beatings, all that he experienced was worth it. 
when he received that imperishable crown from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. My challenge to you is this. What really are you running for? There's not a person in here that's not running the race. What race are you running? What goal are you seeking? What is the prize that you really hope to attain? Is it perishable or is it imperishable? Lord, I just... Ask, Lord, for those who you are really speaking to. It is so easy, especially being in America, to get distracted, to lose our focus on the right goal, and we put our focus on a goal that will perish, that will not last. And we find ourselves mired as a result in the past and in our failures and in frustration and in our pain and things that haven't gone right. But worst of all, Lord, we'll find out when we die. We've all been chasing the wrong goal, wrong focus, living a life of fertility, and we'll stand before you and we won't hear. Well done. You ran the waste well and had that imperishable crown placed upon our heads. I ask now in these next several minutes that, Holy Spirit, we would allow you to really begin speaking to us, just speaking to us about our lives. And maybe some of us just have to do business. And the beauty of this thing is, as we talked about, is we can repent right now and just say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for chasing tinsel cheap gold, cheap silver that's going to perish from this day forward. This day forward, I make the choice to focus on you, to pursue you, to know you, to look like you. I want to receive that heavenly prize that Paul wants to receive. I ask for this in your precious name. Amen.